0: Would you please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, it's towards the end of the New Testament. We're looking at chapter one, verses one to four this morning. Hebrews chapter one, verses one to four. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray one more time. Father, we pray that with the eyes of faith, we would see your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and exalted and that He would be precious to our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. The Christian life is a journey. It's not an easy journey. It's a hard one. And John Bunyan, in his classic work, Pilgrim's Progress, which if you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, you really should, it's the second best-selling book in the world after the Bible. It's a Christian classic. And Bunyan pictures the Christian life, the difficult journey that is the Christian life, through the story of a man named Christian. And Christian begins a long and dangerous journey towards the heavenly city. Along the way, on this journey, he faces many trials, many temptations. He meets various people, so he meets a number of people who speak to him and seek to deceive him, to try and find a shortcut or take the easy way out. He meets others, enemies, who try to destroy him. He meets some who become companions along the way, but then they give up and fall away when the going gets rough. And then he is blessed with a few companions who hold the same faith and hope that he does and that encourage him and spur him on so that they are able to finish the journey. It's a great illustration and picture of what the Christian life is like. The journey feels long and hard. There are many trials and temptations that we encounter. We are often tempted to give up, to lose hope, to take the easy way out. Yet on this journey, God's Word presses us to keep carrying on in faith and hope. So today we begin our sermon series through the letter to the Hebrews. We'll be spending our time in Hebrews for the better part of The next year, maybe even a year and a half with some pauses in between. And this so-called letter, the letter to the Hebrews, was actually, originally, a sermon. So if you read uh, chapter 13 and verse 22, the author says, I have given you this word of exhortation. This was a sermon that was preached in the early church by a concerned pastor to a congregation of weary Christians. Christians who were tempted to give up on the journey. And it's a sermon that passionately exhorts weary Christians to keep moving forward and to endure till the end. It speaks to worn out believers and tells us to keep moving forward By looking backward and upward. Looking backward to the Old Testament Scriptures. God's revelation in His Word. And looking upward to the one to whom all the Scriptures point. To our Lord Jesus Christ seated on His throne. The one who is fully God and fully man. The one who will lead us through our suffering into glory. If you want the original context of this sermon, this letter, it's quite simple. It's called Hebrews, and one uh, teacher said, Hebrews was written to Hebrews who wanted to go back to being Hebrews. So if you got that, you got it. It was written to Jewish Christians, Hebrew Christians, people who had come from Judaism to embrace Jesus as Messiah and Lord, as the fulfillment of of the scriptures but now they were experiencing persecution and hardship and in the midst of that they were tempted to go back to being merely Jews. The author exhorts them not to do that because it would be devastating. Well no one in this room I don't think is tempted to go back to being Jewish but we are tempted in many ways aren't we? The last two years in particular have been an especially hard section of the journey for so many of us. Some of you have grown weary in the journey, begun to lose confidence, begun to lose your faith in God's promises. Your faith is weakening and wavering. Some of you have gotten paralyzed with fear or with faith, faithlessness. Wondering how to find your way back. Some have wandered off. In fact, have drifted and wandered so far that they don't know if they can ever find their way back again. Some of you have given your years to alternate voices. Voices that seek to deceive. That lead away from the Lord rather than to Him. And so, dear friends... We need to hear God's word to us in Hebrews. In this sermon, in this letter, God speaks to us, to you, dear Christian. And today's text, in fact, this entire letter has one message. It calls us to keep holding on in hope. Holding on in hope to Jesus It calls us to look at the scriptures that lead us to Christ. And so we carry on by fixing our eyes on Him. Today's passage, these four verses, is really a summary of the entire book as a whole. And the main message of this text is the main message of the whole of Hebrews. Hold on in faith to Jesus. And the opening passage, Verses give us three reasons why we must hold on to Jesus. So we're going to look this morning at three reasons from this text why we must hold on in faith to Christ. First, we hold on to Jesus because He is God's final word. Jesus is God's final word. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. We live in a world that is constantly speaking. We are constantly bombarded with words, with messages from many different sides, aren't we? Social media, every day. Non-stop, the stream goes on and on, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, whatever platform you use. You take your phone, maybe turn it off for a little while or put it on silent and leave it aside for a couple of hours and then you come back and there's like 50 WhatsApp messages on all of the different groups. All of these voices that... Speak to us. You look at something on YouTube, and then every time you look, there's an ad, and then there's another ad, and then there's something else. And then before you finish watching one video, you go to the next voices. And the question for us is what, or more importantly, who are you listening to? Who is it that occupies your attention? Well, verses 1 and 2 tell us here that the God of the Bible is a speaking God. That God has indeed revealed Himself to us. He has spoken. As Francis Schaeffer famously put it, He is the God who is there and He is not silent. He has revealed Himself. The Bible begins, the story of creation begins with God speaking. There was nothing... It was all formless and void, and God speaks and says, Let there be light, and there is light. And then God keeps speaking, and all of the universe, all of creation comes into being. God continues speaking. He reveals himself to us, He reveals His plans to us in words. He spoke and gave us all of the Old Testament. The text tells us he spoke to our fathers in the prophets. He reveals his plans for humanity to save a people for himself. And now he has spoken fully, completely, climactically, supremely in his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, don't miss that. It's the same God who has spoken then and has spoken now. All of the Bible fits together. It is God's perfect revelation of Himself and of His plans. It is one story from creation to new creation with one message from one source, the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who has revealed Himself by speaking in His Word. The author of Hebrews wants us not only to see That is the same God who spoke then and who speaks now in the Old Testaments and the New. But he also wants us to see the contrast between the earlier revelation and the revelation that is now complete in our Lord Jesus Christ. So there are four contrasts here in these opening two verses between God's previous revelation of himself and his climactic revelation that has come in his Son. The first contrast is when. So I want you to look at the text and follow along. When did God speak? The text begins by declaring that God once spoke long ago to previous generations. But then His word and His Son, He has spoken in these last days. Did you see that phrase at the start of verse 2? In these last days He has spoken. Now, some people, you know, look at a phrase like this, the words, uh, the last days, and some folks tend to misinterpret this and and get uh, kind of hysterical about it, you know. Everything begins to become something big to worry about, right? So you hear a war or rumor of a war or some natural disaster, earthquake or flood, and you say, oh, we're living in the last days. Or some political party comes into power somewhere, another evil regime, living in the last days. Or, you know, many people have gone quite hyper about this. Oh, the vaccines, the COVID-19 vaccines. Djokovic couldn't play the Australian Open, we're living in the last days, pastor. See, in a biblical view of history... The last days begin with the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The author who is speaking in the letter to the Hebrews, the congregation whom he's speaking to, they were living in the last days. He says, in these last days, the last days begin with the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ in his first coming and continue, will keep continuing on till his second coming. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years. God operates on his own timetable. We are in the last slice of history. So the last days are kind of like what people call in football or soccer stoppage time or injury time. So the World Cup is coming up soon, the FIFA World Cup. And the last one in 2018 was said to be the most exciting World Cup ever. And the reason for that was that throughout the course of the World Cup, there were 23 goals scored in stoppage time. 12 of those goals change the outcome of the match. Stoppage time is when the entire 90 minutes are up and then a few minutes are added to the clock and you never know how many. And that's the final slice of the game. Well, we are in stoppage time of the history of this world. We are in the last days, just like the original hearers of this sermon, of this letter. Christ may come at any time. And in these last days, God has spoken in his new covenant revelation in Christ, and it emphasizes upon us the urgency of the word, the urgency of the message that has come in and through Jesus. So that's the first contrast, when God spoke. The next contrast is to whom the revelation is addressed. So again, verse 1 says, God spoke to our fathers He spoke to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He spoke to Moses and Samuel and David. He spoke in generations past in the Old Testament, revealing himself progressively. But now he has spoken to us. The word is addressed to us, dear Christians. It comes to us you know, sometimes you're in a meeting or in some kind of a discussion, maybe at the food court, and, uh, or maybe it's something that happens around the family dinner table. This is quite a frequent occurrence, especially with kids. And, you know, two people get talking about something. Maybe mom and dad get talking about something, and the kids are, you know, kind of doodly doodly do. And then you begin speaking to one of them, and they're still off thinking about something else. I know, I know that's common. And then you say, hey, I'm talking to you. And then all of a sudden, you know, sit up and pay attention. In these last days, God is speaking to you, to us. He spoke to our fathers in the past. Now He is speaking to us. That's the second contrast. To whom is the revelation addressed? The third contrast is very significant. And it concerns the messenger through whom God's revelation has come. The messengers of this revelation Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So God spoke and revealed himself through prophets in the past, through many means. He gave them words to declare the word of the Lord. All of the Old Testament is inspired by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, who spoke, who moved men to deliver God's word to his people. But now... In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. In His Son. He has spoken and revealed Himself through one who is the final prophet, but not a mere prophet. One who is far, far greater than any other prophet. He has spoken to us in His own Son. God's own Son Himself is the one who brings us God's climactic revelation. The Word became flesh. Jesus doesn't just deliver God's Word. He is God's Word who has come to us incarnate, personally. And the New Testament is His saving Word, the product of the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, God has spoken, finally, in one who is far greater than any other, in His Son. That's the third contrast. And the last contrast concerns the manner in which God has spoken. The manner in which God has spoken. You see, verse 1, it says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke. So in the Old Covenant, under the Old Testament, Revelation, God's Word came in many installments, piece by piece, in many different modes, through visions and dreams, sometimes through direct speech. But now you notice in verse 2, there's no corollary. It's different. He has spoken once for all, fully, finally, climactically in His Son. What has now come is singular, complete, and final in Jesus Christ our Lord. You know this uh, game, new word game that is taking the internet by storm? Some of you probably have been playing it. I have been playing faithfully every day, and I am on a non-stop winning streak. It's called Wordle, right? Wordle. And you know, part of the game is kind of like a code breaking exercise. It's you get six turns to guess a five letter word, right? And with each guess, uh, the letters turn different colors. So, you know, green means you got the right letter in the right spot, yellow means you got the right letter, but in a wrong spot. And then if it's gray, then that's wrong. And so, you know, your people are trying. Some people get it in two, sometimes I did a couple of days ago. But as you keep going down, right, you have a few letters here that you get right a few letters there and a few letters there. And all of a sudden, you guess, and it turns green, all green, all five letters green, and the word is complete. Well, that's kind of how the revelation of God has progressed, isn't it? In the past, there was a little bit here and a little bit there, a little more here, a little more there. But now it has come completely. All five green letters, all fulfilled, complete, final, in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. God has spoken in Christ fully and finally. And so, dear friends, if it is the fact that God has spoken now, in these last days, in and through Jesus Christ, to us, then, dear brothers and sisters, we must listen. We must pay attention to the authoritative voice that calls us, that calls you to the obedience of faith. And so I want to ask you again this morning, what or who are you listening to? Where is your attention even today? Have you shut your ears and hardened your heart and turned away from the voice of your shepherd? Or have you crowded out his voice with other voices? with the constant buzzing and busyness and worries of life. We had this uh, exercise with one of our daughters this past week, a daughter who shall remain unnamed, uh, and we asked her to write down why she should read her Bible. And she wrote down, I should read my Bible because it helps me to know and love Jesus and to love other people, and because if I don't read my Bible... I will be doomed. You know what? She's right. Listening to Jesus is a matter of spiritual life or death. And remember where we hear His voice. Hebrews will point us again and again to this fact that it's in the Word of God, in the Scriptures read, in the Word of God especially preached, that we hear the voice of Christ. So I want to encourage you, admonish you, dear friends, don't go looking for some strange and subjective experience in which you follow your own feelings and then say, well, God spoke to me and told me this or that. Don't go looking for the latest uh, YouTube sensation who's going to plop some spiritual nugget of wisdom into your lap that will be of no profit to your life. Instead, I want to call you to hear and heed the voice of the shepherd who speaks to you from the scriptures as his word is read and his word is preached every Lord's Day. This is why we're committed to expository preaching here at ECC, that the main point of every sermon will be the main point of the text of scripture This word is what builds us up. This word is what shows us Christ. This word is what gathers us from the nations and makes us one people. It summons us. It draws us and makes us one in Christ Jesus. And so I want to encourage you to give your attention to the preached word of God. Come on Sunday mornings with a heart of anticipation. Make sure you get enough sleep the previous night so that you're not dozing off here. Let this word move you. Take it to heart and obey the Son of God who speaks through it. Don't just hear and go away unchanged. No, let it permeate your life and your being. Jesus' authority demands obedience and response. And you know, this frees us up with amazing boldness and confidence, doesn't it? Knowing that God has spoken clearly and that He has spoken in His Son, in His word, ought to give us great boldness and confidence in sharing the truth with others. You don't need some clever method. You don't need, you know, a winning personality. You don't need some fancy trick or to know all the ins and outs of various cultures. You just need to be faithful in bringing our non-Christian friends to the Bible and showing them Christ. I want to speak to non-Christian friends if you're here this morning. He speaks to you too. Jesus is speaking to you. Are you listening? There is no further revelation to come after Jesus. No other prophet, no other word. Jesus is God's final and finest word. The Bible is God's full and complete revelation. And I want to say to you, dear non-Christian friend, the Son of God speaks to you this morning and calls you to come to Him and to cast yourself upon Him in faith. Jesus speaks to little children here this morning. Children, there are so many voices all around you in this world, in this life, that are calling you this way and that. Well, Jesus addresses you. The whole Bible, every Bible story that you've read or learned or heard told, all of it, all of the Bible points to Jesus. And he welcomes children to come to him. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the one in whom God has spoken to us fully and finally. Without him, Without his word, we are doomed. This is why Hebrews calls us to hold on to Jesus. Because he is God's final word. Not only is Jesus God's final word, but the text shows us that in Christ, God has spoken in one who is far greater than any other. That's our second reason why we must hold on to Jesus. First, we hold on to Jesus because He is God's final word. Second, we must hold on to Jesus because He is God's divine Son. Jesus is God's divine Son. Look at verses 2 and 3. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So these verses will now form kind of a ring structure as the author takes us deeper and deeper into who this Jesus is. So the outer ring, he speaks of Jesus as the one who inherits all things, the heir of all things, all right? You'll see that in verse 2. He mentions that Jesus is the one who has been appointed the heir of all things. Again, in verse 4, it speaks about inheritance, right? It says, Jesus has inherited a name more excellent than the angels. So that's the outer ring. In the next ring, as you go one ring closer in these concentric circles, he talks about Jesus and his relation to creation, Jesus is the one through whom God created all things, and He is the one who upholds all things, who upholds the universe by the word of His power. And then as you move one step deeper, right at the center of these rings, it says what verse 3 says, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. We must pay attention to the word that God has spoken in Jesus because Jesus is God's Son. And as we look at these uh, rings and the assertions that the author makes, we will see that the Bible, when it speaks of Jesus as the Son of God, speaks of Him as the Son of God in two distinct ways. There are two senses in which Jesus is the Son of God. And both those senses are clear in this passage. First, Jesus is the Son of God in the sense that He is divine. He is God the Son eternally. Jesus is fully and completely in every way God. We see this here repeated again and again in what the author says. So look at verse 2. It says, Jesus is the one through whom God created the world. Leaving the outermost ring for a moment, I'll come back to that. We're going to the second ring here. Jesus is the one through whom God created the world. He is the agent of creation. I mean, the biblical worldview is very clear. There is the creator, and then there is a distinct line, and then there is all of creation. We, his creatures. To say that Jesus was the one through whom God created the world means that he pre-existed creation. There is a distinct line that separates the creator from the creation. And the author of Hebrews clearly places Jesus on the side of the creator. He is far above creation. He is the one through whom all of it was created. Next in verse 3 he gives these amazing assertions. It says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the one who shines out the very identity of who God is. Just like when you look at sunlight and it blinds your eyes, you are looking at the sun. When you look at Jesus, you see the blazing glory of God in all his fullness. Not only is he the radiance of the glory of God, he is the exact imprint of God's nature. So you know in the UAE, it's very common for uh, us to uh, to have these stamps, right? And the government will use these stamps. And sometimes it means good news for you when you get the paper stamped, you know, the work is done. And when this stamp is made, what you see on the paper, the imprint that you see on the paper is an exact replica of what's on the actual stamp. That's exactly the idea that the author wants us to get here. It's the exact same language that he's using. That in Christ, in the Son of God... We see the exact imprint of who God is. Jesus is God. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So the author author brings us back to Jesus' relation to creation. The universe is held together, dear friends, by a living person. And his name is Jesus Christ. Without him, the stars and planets and galaxies would collapse into nothing. Not one creature takes its breath apart from him. Not one hair of your head falls to the ground apart from him. Not one snowflake or raindrop falls to the earth apart from him. Not one grain of sand in the desert blows in the wind apart from his will and apart from his word. Not one molecule or virus operates in this world apart from his perfect plan. Jesus is the divine son of God. He is not just a good teacher. He is not just another prophet. He is not just a good man who taught good things. No, he is fully and truly God. And this is why Jesus is the perfect and final word of God. He perfectly reveals God because he is God. What does it mean to say that he is God the Son? Now, sometimes people get confused on this, especially when we share with some of our non-Christian neighbors and friends, how can God have a son? Well, when we speak of Jesus being God the Son, or the Son of God, we don't mean that He is the Son of God in any biological sense. We don't mean that He is a second God who came later, nor do we believe in two gods, one who is Father and one who is Son, nor do we believe that He was formed through some kind of process of reproduction. No, we believe in one God who eternally exists in three persons God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit how can that be well remember we cannot know anything about the infinite almighty creator God unless he speaks to us and reveals himself to us there's no other way you can know anything about God you wouldn't know anything about me unless I told you something about myself And so God has spoken and He has revealed Himself to us in the Bible, and the biblical pattern of revelation teaches us that God is one being who exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So to say that Jesus is God the Son is to say that He is fully and completely God, yet He is distinct from God the Father. He eternally exists in the status of son within God, which means he fully shares in the nature and identity of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He fully shares in the works of God. He is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He is the creator of this universe, and he is its Lord who upholds it by the word of his mighty power. And dear friends... If he upholds the universe, how much more will he uphold your life if you flee to him? No matter how weary you are, no matter how hard the journey has gotten, no matter how weak you feel, no matter how desperate or difficult things are right now, even if it feels like your life is falling apart. Come to Jesus. Hold on to the one who holds all things together and who will hold you to the end, who will keep you from stumbling. So on the one hand to say that Jesus is God's son is to say that he is fully divine. But there's a second sense in which the Bible speaks of Jesus as the son of God. To say that Jesus is the Son of God means that He is the promised one who fulfills all God's promises. He is the promised Son who comes from the line of David. We see this sense of Jesus being the Son of God in the outer edges of our text, the outermost ring. It says in verse 2 that He was appointed heir of all things. And again, it says in verse Verses 3 and 4, it tells us that he has become superior to the angels by as much as he has inherited a name more excellent than theirs. What does that mean to say that Jesus is God the Son, but he has been appointed heir of all things? Or to say that he inherited a name greater than the angels? What does it mean to say that he became superior to the angels? We'll talk more about Jesus and the angels next week in next week's sermon. But to understand what this language is speaking of, we need to think more about the Bible's story. See, the Bible begins with God creating all things, and He creates the first human pair, Adam and Eve, in a beautiful paradise garden, and He gives them authority to rule on His behalf. They will rule on behalf of the Creator God, who is King. Adam and Eve, deceived by the serpent, by Satan, the devil, rebel against God's rule. They seek to rule on their own authority. And so this brings judgment and a curse. But God promises that He will redeem His fallen creation through a son. That an offspring will come from the woman who will crush the serpent's head. And so the Bible begins with us waiting for this promised son, this promised offspring. Very soon after that, we see God make promises to a man named Abraham. God begins to channel his plans through Abraham and his family. And he tells Abraham, I will make your name great. And he promises Abraham that in Abraham's offspring, all nations will be blessed. Well, we keep on reading. We're still waiting for that to happen. We see the story of Abraham's family go on and on until we come to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we see a king from Abraham's family now seated on the throne, a king named David. And God speaks to David and God tells David, I will make your name great. The same thing he said to Abraham all those generations ago. And he promises that there will be a son of David who will forever rule on the throne And that all the nations will be his inheritance. All nations will be blessed under his rule. And so we keep waiting as we read the Old Testament. Many sons of David come and they all fail. And the whole story of the Old Testament is is, is that of waiting for this promised one to come. The promised one to whom the nations belong. To whom all things are his heritage. And the author of Hebrews is telling us here, when he says Jesus was appointed heir of all things, he is telling us that all these promises have been fulfilled in Christ. As the one who is fully God, who took on a human nature, became fully man, Jesus comes from the line of Abraham. He is the promised king, the promised son from the line of David. In him, all God's promises are fulfilled. Do you see verse 3? It says, He sat down. At the right hand of the majesty on high, he shares God's throne and he brings about God's rule in a way that David failed to do, in a way that Adam failed to do. He is the son of David who will forever rule and reign. He is the promised one who inherits the great name promised to Abraham and then David. He is our human representative, the offspring of Abraham, the king from the line of David, the promised seed of the woman who was perfectly obedient to God and never failed. And as the eternal divine son, all things belong to him because he created all things. But now, as a human being who is fully man forever, he has been exalted and crowned as king. Fully God, fully man who rules over the ends of the earth, and to him belongs the worship of the nations. We see that in this very room, don't we? The fruit of Jesus' rule, that he draws people from all nations to himself and has made us one in Christ to worship him. And of course, in light of Jesus' rule and authority, the author of Hebrews wants to ask us again, wants to ask you, to whom else will you go? To whom else can we turn in our trials and in our pain, in all of our temptations, but to the one who rules and reigns? As we think about more variants emerging and cases surging, as tensions rise in the region in which we live, as we just grow tired from this sin-sick world, In all of it, dear friends, Jesus is the divine human Lord and King who rules and reigns over this world and over our lives. And you might hear that and be tempted to think, well, how can I dare? How can I dare to draw near to Him? He is God. He is King. How can He sympathize with my suffering and pain?" Or how can I come to him when I'm so covered in sin? But you see, friends, that's exactly why we need Jesus. That's exactly why we must draw near and hold on to him. Because not only is he God's final word and God's divine son, we must hold on to Jesus because he is our perfect high priest. Jesus is our perfect high priest. I said that Jesus is fully God and that he became fully man, taking on to himself a human nature. But why did he become man? He became man to save us, to save sinners like you and me from our sins. Do you see what it says in verse 3? It says that before his exaltation, before he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, he made purification for sins. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Throughout Hebrews, we'll see this, that Jesus is the divine son and king, but he is also our great high priest and sacrifice. He is our mediator who makes a way for sinful human beings like you and me to draw near to our holy God and His throne. You know, you might remember uh, our series through the book of Leviticus last year that under the old covenant, God appointed priests to serve as mediators, that these priests from the tribe of Levi were to be the representatives of God's people, to stand at the altar and offer sacrifices for sins. And it was through these priests acting as representatives and through these sacrifices which were offered as substitutes for sinners, all prescribed by God. It was only through these things that God's people could approach him. But all those priests were flawed and imperfect. They were sinners just like us. They had to offer sacrifices for their own sins first. And all of those sacrifices kept on being repeated but were ultimately never enough these priests keep standing, offering sacrifices for their own sins, sins uh, sacrifices for the sins of the people. The priests died and then they're replaced by other priests who continue the same work. The sacrifices kept being offered, the blood of bulls and goats being spilled continuously, but all of it never brought ultimate purification for sins. That's why they kept on being repeated. This is the argument that the author of Hebrews will press upon us. All of the blood of bulls and goats could never take away our sin, Not a thousand offerings could make us clean within. Every sacrifice was a shadow, a pointer forward to a perfect mediator who would come. Pointing forward to a greater and more perfect high priest who would offer a perfect sacrifice, a sacrifice that would be offered once for all to cleanse our hearts forever. Friends, Jesus, the Son of God, is this perfect high priest and he offers himself as the perfect sacrifice and his sacrifice completely purifies us from sin that's why while the other priests kept on standing at the altar offering sacrifices, Jesus the divine son of God who was made man for us, offered his perfect sacrifice, his death on the cross, rose again, was exalted into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. That's the climactic verb in this verse. In this entire section, all of the other verbs are helping verbs. The main verb is that Jesus sat down. He sits on God's throne. His work is finished. He has sat as king and priest forever, meaning it is done. And how we need this purification. Because you see, even as we grow weary and as we stumble and struggle with the trials and the temptations that press against us from outside, in this journey, we are most weighed down, you and I know it, by the sin that is ever on the inside, the weight of our own sin, the debt of guilt that we face before God, our Creator and Holy Judge, the dark stain of sin that we carry in our hearts, The fact that we are sinful through and through in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. In every sense, we have failed and we fall short. But Jesus has made purification for sins. He offered himself. He died. Jesus died on the cross once for all, pouring out his blood to save sinners, taking upon himself the judgment that you and I deserve. See, one author says, I love this, when you realize who he is, you recognize what only he can give the one who is fully God and fully man, only he could be our representative, only he could be our substitute. And so he became our perfect representative, our high priest, our spotless sacrifice through his death on the cross, our perfect representative and substitute who brings us to God, saying, it is finished. So dear friend, if you have never entrusted yourself to Jesus, if you have never come to this glorious Son of God and High Priest in faith, I want to call you. Would you hear the voice of the Son of God speaking to you from the Scriptures, offering you, even you, purification from your sins? Maybe you're here this morning or you're watching online and you think, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to come to church. I've totally blown it. Or, you know, I've just fallen away on this journey. I've, I've missed for two years now. I failed. Friends, come to Jesus. Receive purification for sins. Draw near to his, to his throne of grace children, I want to invite you to come. Come to this Savior. Come to this Son. Come to this Christ. Maybe you're listening to these words and you, and you think, really? Can God really forgive me, pastor? I fail, I fall short every day, all the time. Dear brother or sister, dear friend, Jesus sat down. His work is finished. And our great high priest, our spotless Savior, calls you, invites you to hold on to Him. That's why we must hold on to Christ. Because there is forgiveness in no one else. Our Christian life is hard. The journey is long and we grow weary. There's all kinds of suffering on the path. One scholar, I think, brilliantly captures what these early Christians who heard this letter were facing. They faced one question. Is it worth it to be a Christian? That's a question for all of us. Is it worth it to be a Christian? And the author of Hebrews answers that question with one word. Christ. We have Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great and glorious Son. Our divine Savior our great high priest through whom we can approach your throne of majesty. May we approach you always together. In Jesus' name, amen.